again, everybody. Scott Bound and Brian Last, right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of the Kentucky Fried Wrestling Podcast. And Brian, I know the question that's on your mind and all of our listeners out there. Yeah, where have you been? That's the question that everyone's what? been wondering. Uh, I, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Dude, I've been in deep cover, man. Deep cover? Yes, yes. I have been going to <laughs> the ends of the earth to uncover further evidence that supports my case in the Mill Maskers oh, Monday Night Miss. No, I'm, I am dead serious. I, oh, oh, hold it there, Gorilla Monsoon. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much it. I am the I am the brain to your gorilla, and I am the one who is going to crack this case once and for all. I highly finally, unlikely. High, <laughs> you wouldn't know a wrist wrist lock from a wrist watch. Yeah. Uh, that's harder to say than it sounds. Yeah, I'm glad you picked a wrestler with no connection at all in Memphis. <laughs> Can I finish? Are you through? <laughs> Go ahead. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, finally, I have got the transcription. Because, as you know, I accidentally recorded the entire conversation between Mill Maskers and I. Accidentally? Yes, I was I was sitting there chatting with him, and I said I told you I was wearing these skinny jeans that my that my wife had bought me, and it accidentally set off the recording device on my Samsung Galaxy Note that I am not ashamed of. All you iPhone boys out there who have given me flack for buying a Samsung, at any rate, they should have been giving you flack for wearing skinny jeans. How old are you? <laughs> well, it's my wife bought them, okay, and I put them on, and believe me, they they are no, they are no longer in my wardrobe. At any rate, at least I don't wear Dockers, dude. I saw, I saw no, I saw you wearing a pair of like cut off dockers one day and I was like, what? What's he doing? Where did you see that? <laughs> <laughs> Let me know. I'd like to see that. At any rate, um, as you as you know, there was a lot of whispering going on between Mill Mascaris and his handlers. He had this whole team of thugs around him to ensure that this autograph session went okay. And that's why this is such big news, because who knows what they were saying? They were speaking in Mexican. Spanish, whatever. <laughs> but, oh, come on. Come on. Now, hold on. I have been transcribing the back and forth whispering between Mill Mascaris and his handlers. And I think we should go. Well, let's go to a break. And when we come back, we are going to go through this evidence. And we are not only going to take a look at January 29th, 1979, but we are also going to take a look at the entire year of 1979 and the matches that I attended personally at the Mid-South Coliseum. It should be a packed show. If we're going to get it all in, we better get going. We'll see you right after this. This man is not a television illusion. He is not an artist's conception. He is not a figment of the imagination. He is real. He stands an amazing six foot seven inches tall. He weighs an incredible 324 pounds. He is the Hulk. The Hulk, without a doubt, is the most awesome figure in professional wrestling today. His measurements are almost unbelievable. His neck measures 24 and 3 quarter inches. His chest expands to an incredible 59 inches. 
His biceps are 26 inches, and at the end of these powerful arms are two 12-inch fists. This magnificent upper body tapers off to only a 34-inch waist. The Hulk is supported by tree-like legs that can leg press over 1,900 pounds. Combine these amazing measurements with more brute strength than you can imagine, and you have the Hulk. And the Hulk is coming here. And we are back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And as I mentioned, I believe I finally have the smoking gun that will answer and deliver a verdict once and for all. Was it truly Mill Maskers under the mask on the night of January 29th, 1979? And what I've done, I went to one of my Mexican friends here in Los Angeles. <laughs> Who's your, who are your Mexican <laughs> friends in Los Angeles? Hey, there's this guy down at El Coyote. He manages the place. And I went in to have dinner. Like Rod Serling, dude. Rod Serling used to write scripts at El Coyote. Type away smoking and drinking margaritas and eating enchiladas. Oh, yeah. And actually, El Coyote was the last place that Sharon Tate ate, along with Abigail Folger, before they were murdered oh. by uh, Charles Manson. Well, so. good luck tonight. Yeah, they don't, they don't usually promote that. Very much, but uh, at any rate, so I thought, well, what would you do? Because when I was getting, what? You're laughing at all this. This is very serious to me. I thought it would be interesting. Matter of fact, it had to be done to get the full transcription between Mill Mascaris and his handlers. Because as you know, Brian, when I'm talking to him, Mill Mascaris speaks pretty good English, wouldn't you say? I think he's, yes, I would say. I would say he speaks pretty good English. Yeah. Muy bueno, right? I mean, very well. So why is he constantly talking to his handlers in Spanish? It's his native language. And I assume theirs as well. Yeah, but what are they hiding? So I had to find hiding. out. Yes, and I think you will agree with me. Even you, is Brian. That what you sent me? Is that what this even, email is? Yes, this is a transcription between Bill Maskers and his handlers. Let me open so this. Hold on, hold on. You did this yourself? No, no, I, I told you I got one of my Mexican friends to do it. SB having him sign something. The handler says, El de Memphis, verdad? The Memphis one, right? And then yeah. MM, which I'm assuming is Mil Mascaris, said, yes, yes. El de Memphis, see? The Memphis one, yes. And then you said, would you mind writing, yes, that was me? <laughs> Just leading the witness, I would think. Uh, Scott no, Brown. no. I'm at, no, in a sense, I'm asking him to confirm whether or not that was him on the night in question. Well, his response to that is, tr- is tricky because he laughs, it says here, and then he says, uh, and, and excuse me if I say this wrong, Ali Estoyo Mira, and then unintelligible, there I am, look, yeah. homo no vacer, why wouldn't it be? And again, that goes back to my whole argument. His whole defense for everything is, of course I was there, I'm Mill. Right. Why he would I be there? Well, no, it's one. Okay. I think you're interpreting this all wrong because we're looking at it going, wow, we've read what uh, Meltzer has said, what the boy, some of the boys have said about Mill Maskers being so difficult to work with. That couldn't have been here in th- there that night. It, it's just impossible. But we're not really thinking about, you know, the times and the relationships and the fact that he had a booking the night before in Houston and was probably traveling somewhere else and was just merely passing through. And as Jerry Jarrett pointed out, he, you know, he didn't even know where Memphis was. He said to guarantee you that he got in a car, had to pull out a map to even find Memphis. So 
And again, where there's no bill after taking photos. And actually, at that point in time, I don't think any photographers were taking photos on a regular basis in Memphis. So there you go. Cornette didn't even find out about the appearance until the following week. And by the way, you brought up Meltzer, what he has said about this. I think Dave Meltzer has avoided this story because of uh, (laughs) multiple weeks of this show now. But let me go back to this transcript of sorts that you sent me that you said your Mexican friend prepared for you. I'd like to know if there was any money that exchanged hands during this process. But the handler then says, no, CS, uh, either saying no, that is referring to it really being him on that Memphis uh, card reprint or no, if it's to explain what Scott Bowden is asking. I, I would think if he said no CS, he would CS, excuse me, he'd be saying, no, that is him. Right. And so, uh, uh, but, then, uh, but what the hell does it, the handler know? Well, but then I, I, ex- I explain to elaborate a little bit so he can explain this better in Mexican is that a lot of people don't think it was him getting to the point of, you know, a lot of people think it was a ringer. And then we have the handler saying, go ahead, Brian. By the way, I like they used handler like he had Kim Chi by his side. <laughs> well, no, it's the autograph. No, Bill was the only one wearing a mask for the record. Okay. Okay. Well, then after all of this, uh, you explained to Mill that a lot of people don't think it's him. And the handler then says, que si le puede poner que si, que si estaba eras, which is implied to be, he wants to know if you can write that you were there, that it is you. Which Mill Moskris responds, according to this bootleg transcript here, no, <laughs> pues el, el, excuse me, pues es el programa, which is no, well, that's the program, as if saying, I will not confirm that is me. It's right there. I do not need to. No, no, he's confused. He's like going, well, uh, he's like, he's like, well, like, no, no. I mean, why, why do I need to write that? I mean, there's the program. Isn't that evidence enough? That is in effect what he's saying, because what he's not understanding is the fact that this is a recreation for Mark James book, 100 Greatest Nights at the Mid-South Coliseum. And so it, it's made to look like a like a window poster that that was uh, that you would find in mostly the small towns. I rarely, if ever, saw a uh, a poster promoting the Mid South Coliseum matches because you didn't have to because they had the world's greatest commercial for ninety minutes each and every Saturday morning. So, at any rate, uh, but he doesn't know that he thinks that's an he thinks that's an actual reprint from the uh, the Memphis program, which is another thing that's a problem because this appearance was not put together until I think late. Thursday night, early Friday morning, the originally scheduled card was Austin Idol versus Lawler in a singles match, and then it was changed to a tag match. I'm reading this. It sounds like you guys are badgering this poor, as you put it, confused man. It says, the handler then says, Pongale si soyo, right? Yes, that's me. You're telling him exactly what to write. You're telling him to write the conclusion that you're looking for, to which Mil Moscaris responds, Ali, I'm not even going to read this in Spanish because I give up there. We were there. We were there. Who's we? We were there. We were there. There. It's approved. Yes. And this is when. Yes. 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 And this is when. Yes. Yes. See, see, it's Mexican (laughs) tradition that when you emphatically you know, put your soul on the line and confer something with you. You do it with a check mark. What are you talking about? Yes. That's yes. Mexican yes. I am dead serious. And yes, it is. It is a, a very important part of the Mexican heritage to confirm or deny anything with the, with the swirl of a, of a check mark. And no one can deny that he checked his name. You saw that right next to the autograph. He would have confirmed he was in Sarajevo to get you out of there. I think this pretty much 
closes the case. This doesn't close anything. <laughs> what? It's you wide got... open still. Uh, no, he your, says your deep we cover were... was a failure. Can we go back to the point where we were there? We were there. Who's we? Who is we? Austin Idol and me. No, it's, no, it's not. They hate each other. His or buddy Idol doesn't like him. Oh, they let no. They were very close. They were really good friends. It was the start of a beautiful friendship, as I recall Austin saying on his show. Idol said it was the worst match he ever had his entire career. Him against Mil Moscaris in Japan. Well, they were too, too. They were too close. They were, you know, they'd gotten to be such good friends that it was just hard for them to go in there and act like there was any animosity whatsoever. That's that's the story that I heard on that. But anyway, moving on. Hey, I got a question for you. Remember how this all happened? We were about to record the show a few weeks ago, and. At the last second, I said, hey, let me just search and see if there's any Mil Moscaris autograph signings in the greater Los Angeles area. And it turned out he was not far from your house, like within an hour. Yeah. And you went well, there and that's how this all happened. Is there a chance maybe you or some of the listeners can run into him again very soon in the Los Angeles area and see you know, if his story changes? Maybe well, based on the handler he has, the story will change. Well, here's the thing. You mentioned this poor, confused man, and that's true. They do say... That after the beating he took that night at the Mid-South Coliseum, that he's never really been the same. And that was back in 1979. So, uh, but the thing about it is, Memphis is a, it's, it's a very unique town. It's a very unique territory. I think we can all agree on that. If if there were a few appearances of of Emil Mascaris, right? And I think he would, be, he would, he would be more inclined to be able to, it, it was, <laughs> the fact that he only appeared once. Okay, I think he has to remember that. I mean, I think he would honestly look at something and go, 1979, why would why would it, you know, why would I be in Memphis? No, that couldn't have been me because I was working all the major cities. I was flying, but you know, we're not thinking of it in the and again, what Jerry Jared is, is saying, and he said so nicely, and it was laughing when he said it. He goes, You and Cornette are looking at this like a like a couple of like a like a couple of marks. You know, like the like the couple of super fans that you were who read the magazines and had Mil Mascaris on this pedestal. Yeah, he it's was the exact a, opposite. You'd have to be a mark to believe that Mil <laughs> Mascaris suddenly stopped in Memphis to work as a heel and do a stretcher job to Jackie Fargo. <laughs> why? 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 <laughs> See, because there's not a single other example of him doing anything selfless at any point throughout his career anywhere on you any don't know continent that. and in any country. You don't know that because if you look back at the, at the if you try to find a Mill Masker's record book, good luck because I have certainly tried. I mean, it is very hard to track his whereabouts in the in the seventies on a consistent basis. So in small towns we, that the, we're not even sure where he appeared. I mean, is it really that hard that hard to believe that he may have done something like this? I mean, we're thinking of it as like, oh my gosh, he worked as a heel. Oh my gosh, dude, he's a professional. I mean, deep down, you know, I know the guy had a reputation for rubbing some people the wrong way, but you're trying to tell me this guy got booked around the world on a routine basis without being somewhat likable and somewhat of a good worker and some and, and, and being with the he drew money. People he did draw you if you draw money. Yeah, he did draw money. I don't think as he got older, this is like around that curve. And I'm not like trying I, to take down Mil Moscus. You're somehow turning this into a defense of Mil Moscus. <laughs> I'm just saying it's patently ridiculous that he landed in Memphis went to the Mid-South Coliseum, and all of this transpired. With that said, there certainly is a lot of evidence that points in that direction, but you can't oh. dismiss the reasoning you mean, anyone you mean, who believes that it's ridiculous. Yeah, You mean the testimony of Austin Idol, his tag team partner, which has not changed. His story has not changed. Jerry Jarrett, the promoter who booked the appearance, um, 
Who else did we have that confirmed it? No one. <laughs> Wait a minute, Mill Maskers himself. Mill Maskers is no one. Mill Maskers doesn't even remember he was there that day. He said, "He said, see, see, yes, that's me." Do I have to read this transcript? <laughs> transcript back to you? Oh my gosh! Excuse me. Like, what about this part? Hold on. Where was this? No. Well, that's the program. He's doing his best to try not to do that, as if you're putting him on the spot to make him confirm that this bootleg wrestler was oh, indeed him. Yeah. Yeah, because he can't figure it out. He goes, why is this such a big, you know, why is it hard, so hard to believe that I wouldn't be in Memphis? Why not? Why wouldn't I be there doing that? That is in effect. Okay, here's he's... what I want you to do. I want you to go to the next autograph appearance. Oh, my. And listen to me. <laughs> we will have Travis Heckles out there. We will make a phony poster for Mil Moskris in a town there's no way he ever wrestled in on a show in the 70s. And we will see if he'll say that he was there. Oh, my gosh. That's ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. Come on. This theory. Because this whole thing doesn't hold up. This would have been thrown out of court minutes ago. Well, uh, and, so people <laughs> saying, and people are saying, okay, they're saying, okay, well, uh, I'm still not convinced. You know, and originally when I told the story, people were like, well, if you get Jerry Jarrett to explain it, then I'll believe it. So what did I do? I asked Jerry Jarrett. He gave me a, a very detailed account of how this appearance came about and try to explain to you and everyone else that, you know, you weren't in the business in 1978. Were you even born in 78? You were in diapers in 78. And I was there at the Mid-South Coliseum that night, but I was only seven years old. The relationships between and the- it was 79. He said he would have done anything. He would have done anything. <laughs> Sorry, it was January 7th. No, it is. It's right in front of you. You've got me so confused now. <laughs> It was January 79, okay? And I was, uh, how old was I? Uh, eight and three quarters. So, you know, my memory of it, yes, definitely. It looked like Mill Maskers. It ha he had the absolute traditional outfit that you usually see in the magazines. I can confirm that. And you don't just buy one of those off the rack. However, what I do color have, was I do it? Have, what I do color have, was it? It was the classic silver and black. It was silver and black. He wore the silver yes. and black. What? You had a cape? Uh, that I don't remember. I have don't to be honest. A cape. Did he have uh, anything I, other than the mask and the tights? He had the well. He had the tights and the boots. It, it, the exact outfit. Did the, the boots have his MM on it? Well, the, the well, the mask had the M for Memphis. I think we <laughs> were you close enough to actually see that the mask had M on it. <laughs> well. If I weren't if, if if I weren't in position to see it that night, I definitely saw it on the highlights on the news following Tuesday. Did you? When was Jack it shot from ringside? Or was it shot from yes. far? Was it shot wide? No, no, no. I remember it was it was it was uh, shot from ringside, which they rarely did, but they would do that for the news broadcast. It was a news cameraman, not the traditional wide shot. So it had a shot, a close up shot of Mill going for the flying body press, and I believe it was Lawler who moved out of the way. And they just started putting the boots to him. So, in effect, Mule did not have to take a pinfall, you see. Well, hold on, hold on. Let's go back to this whole, as we were figuring out that your whole story is dissolving right before us as we start examining it. You saw on the newscast, in this brief clip, while Jack Eaton was doing the news, the sports. Big Jack. <laughs> what, sorry? El, El Grande Jack. <laughs> you saw Mil Moscaris on the top rope, and you saw him clearly enough to see the M on his mask. Yes. Before you leave. Now, I've seen those ringside shoots from this period of time. Nothing's ever clear. Nothing's ever really easy to see. Now, you saw this, though, and was it a close-up of him as he did the flying crossbody, or was it a wide shot from ringside so you could see him actually do it? 
It was a it was a it was a close up shot. I don't remember any close ups of anyone's faces. They climbed the ropes from ringside at any. Oh oh oh! Are you talking about on Tuesday morning or Tuesday afternoon when you're watching the newscast in Memphis? On because any of the arena footage I've seen from that era. That's different. That's different though because this is a news cameraman, not a traditional Memphis wrestling cam shot from 1979. And that's the news what, cameraman like they had close ups of people when they climbed the top rope. What? The, well, like most people, yeah, they, they, you know, a news cameraman is going to film something a different way than a wrestling cameraman at the time. And, you know, back then, that wide open shot, in some ways, that worked beautifully because, you know, when the crowds were packing the Mid-South Coliseum, that added to the energy and the excitement of it when you were watching it on TV. It's like going, wow, look at that. Look at that packed crowd. I mean, I think Memphis was one of the few places that didn't dim the lights because, I mean, it looked spectacular on television when it was full. Do we know if there were ever, during that period of time, Mil Mosker's bootleg masks for sale <laughs> in the magazines or anywhere else? Well, no, in Japan. In, well, other, well, yeah, yeah. Is there I, anyone I, on that show? Hold on, we got the card right here. Who would have been at, in who, Japan? Uh, <laughs> as I look, no one. Okay, so we take that out of the equation. And if you know, and if we're looking at that card, okay, uh, gosh, who's Danny Davis still alive? Coco Ware still alive? Uh, Jackie Welch, Bill Dundee, who has no memory of being on the same card with No Maskers, which neither confirms or denies anything. Dennis Condry. Can we get Dennis on the line? How about Ricky and Robert Gibson? Robert Gibson! Robert Gibson. I used to manage Ricky and Robert. The Rock and Roll Express. Yeah, not Ricky and Robert Gibson. Well, no, Ricky Morton. Right. But are, are you knocking Ricky Gibson? Because I'm doing the exact opposite. I'm making sure we because, specify because... that you had nothing to do with Ricky Gibson. I didn't, but I was a big fan of Ricky Gibson. So right. don't you talk, don't you talk shit about Ricky Gibson? I think he benefited from having no involvement with you whatsoever during right. his career. <laughs> oh, and Ricky and Robert went to New Heights. Let me tell you, during that three week run we had together, David Schultz. See, see, Brian, you don't really want to know the truth because I think David Schultz would remember, and you were supposed to ask him for me when you interviewed him and you declined. To do I, so. I should have asked him. I, I did not. I didn't decline. I forgot to. And then actually, as I see this. He tagged up that day with Wayne Ferris, and I should have asked Wayne also when I recently spoke to him. Oh, you, sp you spoke to Ferris recently? Yeah. And you didn't ask him? He was on the stud cast. <sighs> okay. I guarantee you, Ferris will know if some shenanigans were pulled that night. He, I guarantee the honky-tonk man, the unlikely man, we've got to get the honky-tonk man on the show. There, there we go. That's okay. it. All right. If we get if we get Wayne Ferris on the show and he confirms it, will you believe it? You need one more person who was actually there <laughs> or worked the show to actually say that it was him for me to believe it. And it I has did... to be believable. It can't be flippant. It has to be a believable, plausible right. story that includes some sort of, oh, yeah, that was Mill because I know because I know everyone who worked the territory. It has to be something definitive as opposed to, yeah, I think so. Well, no, I, I, here's the deal, though. Don't you think that Wayne Ferris would love to say, oh, that wasn't Mill Maskers. Come on. Bullshit. That was some idiot. You know, that was a guy who was selling uh, enchiladas at the Mid-South Coliseum who they just threw a Mill Maskers outfit on. That's what, that's what he would love to say. But I think he'll tell the truth. I, and, I, and for one, you know, Ferris, say what you want about Ferris. He doesn't always he – he remembers the events of a situation, and then he spins them, okay, a certain way sometimes. But I'm willing to bet that he would tell us the truth, and I think he'll have a memory of it. Well, I guess we'll find out in the future. Is that the end of the show? Are we done yet? No. 
<laughs> no, we're just getting started. We're taking a look at the entire year of 1979 because I thought it would be kind of cool to revisit. You know what? We were going through a list of some of the most memorable moments at the Mid-South Coliseum. And then I got to thinking, you know, what was memorable for me it w would not be memorable for someone else. Like Brian Lawler teaming with Jerry Lawler for the first time at the Mid-South Mid Coliseum. Now, what made that special for me was the fact, you know, uh, first of all, I, you know, I, of course, was very close. Or at that point, was was pretty close to Brian, uh, very good friends with Kevin Lawler at that point, and was starting to work my way back in as being a referee again because I had refereed in 91. And then Paul Neighbors came aboard, and I, <laughs> because of nepotism, I was forced out. Paul and Paul Neighbors, who went on to work an angle with Vince McMahon in that referee spot that I had, <sighs> boy, that killed me. But I was just starting to come back in ninety and ninety three when uh, and Jerry Jarrett was working very hand, still working very hands on with Brian Lawler and this was like this was the moment that he had been building to where Brian was so entertaining just like a young Jerry Lawler so many years ago and this was like they were going to pull the trigger on the babyface turn and they do it in a big way where Brian is the last one standing in a six man tag elimination match. Team USWA versus Team WWF, and Brian ends up getting uh, the pinfall down two to one against Doink the Clown and Shawn Michaels and makes the comeback and pin Shawn Michaels, who went on to – this is right before Shawn started getting that, uh, that bump to the main events and his first WWF title reign, and Brian pinned him clean in the Mid-South Coliseum to a huge pop. And I think, you know, and I looked over at Jerry Jarrett when that happened and I remember him going, yes, and like, like pounding his fist, like it, you know, it, it clicked and it worked exactly the way that he wanted with limitations, because he still thinks to this day that Memphis could have had a, another big run of sparked houses had they done the obvious angle where the heels beat down Brian who to this point they have not acknowledged their relationship in any way, and Lawler makes a save and, and tear you know with tears and fire. Lawler Lawler's like that's my son. I mean I, I get chills just thinking about it. But of course Lawler was not going to get on board with that because he, he didn't uh, want anyone to know he was fifty. Well, I, that's uh, that's 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 my understanding. But moving <laughs> moving uh, moving right along. Oh, and by the way, uh, you know, there's always this uh, this myth that you know, whenever the houses were down, they would call in Jackie Fargo to spark things. And I have memories of that working a lot. I know Jim Cornette does as well. Uh, but is it really true? So. We'll take uh, a, a brief look at this uh, in the cards of 1979, because this is when Fargo and Jarrett make amends, because Fargo and Tojo Yamamoto did not join Jarrett when, uh, according to Fargo, <laughs> uh, he says Jarrett stole the territory from Nick Goulas, which uh, Jerry Jarrett told me he was absolutely shocked when he saw Memphis Heat, the documentary. He could not believe those words came out of Fargo's mouth, because... And in effect, he was saying that, you know, Jackie had to know that I was telling the truth, that he stole 50 grand from me, which, gosh, what, what would figure, you know, what would 50 grand be today in today's money? Brian? Yeah, I don't know. I don't have my inflation <laughs> anyway, calculator well, in front of it's me. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot, dude. I mean, it's uh, OK. So we're talking about a lot of cash. And uh, so, yeah, even if he, uh, you know, you don't want to, you know, first, first of all, I don't think you want to piss Jerry Jarrett off. 
in a business deal. And I think this sort of, you know, Andy Griffith uh, facade that that he keeps up, I think that's I think that's worked in his in his favor in a lot of business deals. Uh, but anyway, back to the business at hand. Uh, the January twenty first, nineteen seventy nine card uh, ticket sales generated. $16,788 uh, the following Monday night. Now, a lot of people had to be there for Fargo. I was there probably more so for Mil Mascaris because I'd been buying the wrestling magazines for over a year, and he was <laughs> all over uh, probably about 90% of them. He and Dusty Rhodes and Andre or Bruno Sammartino, maybe Backlund and Tommy Rich. Those were like those guys. It was pretty much a rotating deal of who got the covers back then because they sold the most magazines along with – uh, yeah, I did mention Dusty, right? So, yeah, those five. Um, so for the 29th, the crowd is up from uh, $4,000 to $6,102, paying $22,091. So, yeah, there was a jump of uh, about five grand for that appearance. Well, there you go. So there really was a Fargo boost. Yeah, yeah, in that in that particular, because like I said, you know, it was and obviously a big, the crowd numbers. You look at the crowd numbers, you see the crowd numbers are up significantly. Yeah, and so, they're not the greatest. No, they're still no, it's still not the usual Memphis standards. But you know, again, and this is a this is a, a, a I think an unsolved mystery of Memphis, the whole Robert Fuller era. Uh, you know, it has this reputation for being one of the worst years in Memphis history, but. You know, if you look at 1978, uh, the fall of 78, you know, crowds always dip a little bit uh, when school starts again. And I think they had a strong summer of 78. Man, but crowds really dip low in 78, and it kind of carries into 79, and it actually picks up when Fuller takes the book, at least initially, uh, with Austin Idol working on top. But I think one of the big things that – that uh, that's it's hard to figure out because to, with me Austin Idol had a ton of heat and they did everything possible uh except shave his head which they would do years later uh I mean he threw ink in Lawler's eyes tried to blind him I mean uh Lawler actually you know it was almost like uh one of those wonderful cases of taking real life and turning it into reality uh Lawler had a bleeding ulcer and passed out in a Nashville airport well that made the newspapers. And of course, Lawler from his hospital bed said that Idol had kicked him in the stomach and caused internal bleeding. And so that set up this stretcher match because Idol, in effect, had put Lawler in the hospital. Uh, but that was one of the great things about the kayfabe era. You know, you would have something real life happen and then they would turn it into uh, an angle that, that clicked with fans, especially young fans like me who believed in pretty much anything they were being sold. So uh, that leads to April 9th, 1979. Uh, now, this show drew a little over 5,000 fans, which, again, is not typical Memphis standards, but for the time period, and if you look back pre-Robert Fuller era, uh, it, you know, they were averaging about, it seems like uh, about 3,800 fans toward the tail end of between uh, mid-October and December of 1978. So this is still... Uh, higher than they were doing. And this is right before school got out, too. Like, like crowds would start to kind of build a little bit. And then uh, when school hit, they would really jump. And so I think that maybe had something to do with Fuller being replaced, like a new direction. Uh, but, you know, some of the crowds really aren't that bad. I mean, I, 
I, you know, this, you know, 5,000 fans is not bad. I am kind of wondering what the deal was for me. Uh, because again, I got to go on special occasions. Now this card is April 9th. So this would have been held around my uh, birthday, which is on April 30th. So maybe I called in an early birthday favor, early birthday present with my uncle Robert, uh, Austin Idol and the Mongolian Stomper versus Lawler and Professor Tanaka and a no, no DQ match. And I remember the Stomper ends up pinning Lawler and I'm sitting there going, okay, this is, this is, I, I just, I was gutted. You know, I, re I remember thinking, oh man, this is going to hurt Lawler in the ratings. <laughs> you know, the fact that he took a, uh, took a pinfall in a, in a tag match. That's how big of a mark I was. Uh, Southern tag champs, Bill Dundee and Robert Fuller beat the assassins. Uh, Jimmy Golden and Ron, Ron Slinker beat Tommy Gilbert and Buzz Sawyer. Well, that's a unique tag team. And Tony Charles won an elimination match, which included Jerry Bryant, the late, great Jerry Bryant, Danny Davis, Roger Howell, uh, Hans Schroeder, a German guy. <laughs> this guy was supposed to be a Nazi. And he later had a tag team partner, the Mask Gestapo, and somebody named Tuffy Taylor, which... <laughs> this can't be the entire show. Uh... Yeah, it seems like maybe there's a there's a match or two that uh, that dropped off. Although the elimination match, how many guys are in that? I don't know though, man. A lot of a lot of a lot of Jared Card, they would have like five or six matches tops in in Memphis. You know, it didn't get to like when it, it, when the crowds uh, in uh, or when the cards in '83. You know, you look at it, and you go, "Holy cow!" That's when Lawler was like <laughs> doing that deal where he was stockpiling all this talent. And getting ready to break away from Jarrett. That's when you saw this, like, you know, nine, ten match card with, you know, three six-man tag matches trying to give everybody a spot. But uh, this actually looks like maybe one match is missing. But, yeah, five-match card, that, that was pretty typical in Memphis at the time. Well, from there, what was the next show you went to? Uh, Well, May 7th, 1979. Now, I'd already called in my birthday present. So I, I think I was just able to... <laughs> To probably say to my uncle Robert, because as you know, I, I've I've said this before, the earliest memory, I became a super fan in 77 with Lawler and Bill Dundee and the incredible uh, stipulation matches. But the first memory I have uh, of anyone on, on Memphis television was Archie Goldie, the Mongolian stomper, probably one of the absolute greatest gimmicks ever. Uh, this time around, though, the stomper is managed not by Bearcat Wright, the one of the world's greatest promo guys ever. I mean, I just love that guy. Uh, but Gorgeous George Jr. Again, the guy's good, can cut a promo, but he's no Bearcat right. Plus, Memphis fans, you know, I think it's I think it still burned him a little bit that when the Stomper, when, when Bearcat Wright abruptly quit and they let the Stomper go out there and do an interview, and he kind of at that point he had been spending so much time in the southern states that he almost had a southern accent. The fans were like, wait a minute, this guy's, we bought into this whole thing with this guy being from outer Mongolia. He's like from, you know, outer West Memphis. Uh, so <laughs> uh, I think he lost some of his aura uh, this time around. But uh, with me, I had to see Lawler and the Stomper go at it uh, in a single match with the Southern title hanging in the balance. And once again, my hero goes down. So that's two cards in a row now where I've been in attendance and Lawler's lost. I do remember that it was a big deal that Dundee and Robert Fuller beat the Assassins in a loser leave town match, uh, which, uh, you know, I think I was more concerned about Dundee leaving town than, than Robert Fuller. Uh, and they won the Southern tag titles. Now the Assassins, these, I, I think it was, uh, uh, 
uh, Roger Smith and I want to say Don Bass. Uh, and they, but they had, you know, they're really playing up the fact that these were actually Pittsburgh Steelers <laughs> who were, who were, you know, who were wrestling in the off season. And I was a huge Steelers fan. If, if you lived in Memphis in 77, 78, you, to this day, you're either a Steelers fan or a Cowboys fan, maybe a Broncos fan because they were, those were the two winningest teams. You only had, you know, four channels. So, you know, they were the teams you fell in love with, but they were also the teams that you stuck with over the years. So, um, and unfortunately, I missed the card. I, but I remember being very intrigued by Terry the Hulk Boulder, who teamed with Lawler. Uh, was, he was built as Jerry Lawler's surprise for the Stomper and Gorgeous George, uh, drawing 4,392. Now, this, the video that introduces the Hulk is I think one of the greatest promo pieces I've ever seen uh, ever. And I think they played it in each territory where he debuted because they were, you know, Jarrett was trying to figure out, you know, what can this guy do? You know? And he said, so we went to a gymnasium and I worked out with him and he goes, he nearly killed me. Um, And he had this way of like kind of even screwing up the leg drop, which would become his trademark because he would have the guy lined up wrong, but he would still try to drop the right leg, even though if he had if he had the guy lined up, it's gonna you're gonna have both legs coming across the chest, right? And I it's so funny because I've seen him do that several times. I don't know if somebody ever pulled him aside. No, you know the other way. You know, do it the other way. Oh my god! I have to ask you though on this show and the previous one, Thunderbolt Patterson is yeah. on the show. There's very little footage of Thunderbolt in Memphis from 79. What do you remember about him there? Oh, I thought he was cool. I really liked him. And I was very excited about, I think it was soon after this, Lawler, it's a very unique team. Lawler and Thunderbolt Patterson were going after the Southern Tag titles. And this is around, you know, if you look at a lot of these cards, I mean, it's almost like Southeastern light. You know, uh, a lot of names, uh, Ke- you know, Kevin Robert Sullivan. Fuller's crew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tanaka, uh, Stomper, Buzz Sawyer. uh, Gosh, uh, I know Kevin Sullivan came in at one point. I think Ron Garvin worked a show. Uh, Tony Charles, Jimmy Golden. Yeah, it was very much like, uh, oh, and what's interesting, the May 7th card that I attended, and I remember this too, because I was just amazed that a big guy could move that way. Jerry Blackwell, Crusher Blackwell in the second match, losing to Professor Tanaka. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, and a guy who you wouldn't think, uh, you know, he doesn't have really a reputation of being a hot heel. And unfortunately his run in Memphis as a heel didn't last long, but Jimmy Golden, uh, man, and that was the finish to this match. Lawler's about, you know, I think you're not going to believe this, but I believe a referee was knocked senseless by an errant blow as Jack Eaton would say, uh, Lawler went to do his fist drop. I think he was coming off the top rope. Jimmy Golden runs out, pushes Lawler off the top rope. Stomper ends up getting the victory, and it leads in short order. I think this is when they're starting to kind of weed out Robert's crew because everyone starts losing, dropping loser leave town matches <laughs> left and right, and Golden lost one to Lawler shortly thereafter. So which leads us to the summer. So, and this is when I got probably, I, I, got, I got to go maybe once a month during the summer because we were out for school, uh, which was the story with a lot of kids uh, in, in the Memphis area. Because again, you have to remember this time period, you know, with the baby boomers uh, uh, and, and 
they're they're getting they're raising they're starting to raise families and they're not living in Memphis. They're you know they're moving to the suburbs out in Bartlett and it's it's actually becoming more of a hassle to go to the matches and that's that's the thing that I really think has been uh, a point that a lot of people haven't examined. Uh, you know, did that truly have an effect on attendance? I just know that with my friends trying to get to go, it was sort of a thing because the parents were like, "Oh gosh, you know, I got off work. It's a school night. I don't want to. I don't want to drive down there. You know, it's like a, it's about a twenty minute drive, twenty five with traffic maybe uh, from from where I lived in Bartlett to the Mid South Coliseum, and then you got to deal with the parking and the whole thing. And you know, it's a wonder. I think I I think I pestered my poor uncle who. For, absolutely going to have on the show here soon. Uh, I probably begged him to go a lot more than I actually went. So uh, thank you, Uncle Robert, for for putting up to me. I know he listens to the show and he is stunned at my memory of these things. Uh, and I do remember we were there on Monday, July 16th, like a lot of Memphians who were just, they had never seen anything like the Tupelo, Mississippi concession stand brawl. Now this was sort of the reset button for the Memphis territory. Uh what is the what is the famous line that supposedly led to Fuller's uh, uh, firing his booker? Jerry, you know this better. Well, the story allegedly is that Jerry Jarrett at the Mid-South Coliseum was talking to his booker, Robert Fuller, and he said, well, Robert, it can't get much worse than this. And Robert said, well, Jerry, yes, it can. And <laughs> Jerry Jarrett says that's when he fired Robert Fuller. Robert Fuller actually has a different story altogether that he wasn't fired by Jerry Jarrett, his father. Buddy Fuller, who was Jerry's partner at that time, a lot of people forget that, and was it was the last time he was ever really involved in Memphis wrestling, his father fired him, and he said they had gotten into a fight over the payoffs for his crew. So, oh, And there may same. be something in the middle also, because remember, this is right around the time where Bob Roop leads a mass exodus in Knoxville and runs opposition to Southeastern, owned by Ron Fuller, Robert's mm. brother, who Robert had previously booked for with this entire crew. That happens right around the time Robert leaves Memphis to go back with his crew to help the fight in Knoxville. So I don't know what the entire story is, but everyone seems to have a little bit of it. Yeah, and I and I think too, I think uh, Fuller being positioned has the has, suddenly as the area's uh, Superman to to an extent. I mean, he he's the one who beat the Stomper in the Loser Leave Town match and ended his Southern heavyweight title reign. He was also the one who you know they ran the assassins out of town and and he captured the one half of the Southern tag team titles. You know, Booker's have a way of of trying to position themselves uh, on or near the top, and you just weren't going to replace the homegrown star, Jerry Lawler, whether or not Lawler was a baby face or a heel, he was always going to be the top guy. And I don't know if fans really bought Fuller uh, as a main event player, as a singles main event player. Now, when he's paired with Dundee, sure. You know, but a lot of guys who were paired with Dundee got over in that sense and were, uh, and they certainly, fans certainly had some, they had credibility with the fans as a successful tag team. You know, they did that with Steve Kern immediately when he comes into the area because they know that that's going to help him uh, get over because the fans believe in Dundee. So this guy must be all right. Well, the other interesting thing is with Robert Fuller's Booker, for the most part, with a few exceptions like Tom Renesto, that is the last time the booking will be in outside hands, outside of Jerry Jarrett, Jerry Lawler, or Bill Dundee directly working with Jerry Jarrett. Well, and a little bit of a little bit of Dutch Mantel mixed in there. A little bit of Dutch Mantel, but for the most part, it's yeah. not going to leave those three hands, or specifically Lawler and Jarrett, for the next ten years or so, at least. 
Yeah. And Jared told me that that he would, you know, make that offer to a lot of guys. You know, if you want to come to the office and and go through the booking meetings, even if you don't want to say anything, if you'll just listen, uh, you're you're wel- welcome to be there. And he said you'd be surprised that uh, you know, a lot of guys didn't take that, you know, that chance. A lot of, a lot of them didn't mess with it. Uh, Dundee and Dutch Mantel were kind of the exceptions to the rule. And Jarrett said that he was really impressed with Dundee because for the first few meetings, Dundee didn't say a word and just, you know, took it all in and, and listened. And sometimes a lot of times in wrestling, which probably hurt me in my career, it's, it's best, <laughs> it's best to keep your mouth shut, you know, um, cause I've told that story uh, a few times where, you know, one of my first times back as a referee and they're trying to come up with a finish for a Lawler Eddie Gilbert match. And, and I blurt out, <laughs> you know, my idea. So they're like, they literally get the hell out of here. Get out of here. <laughs> oh my gosh. But anyway, uh, so yeah, the Tupelo concession stand brawl. And I know that that was the inspiration for Cornette to buy a, uh, I believe a Betamax, right? Um, yeah. yeah. Sure which ended up losing the, the console war to, uh, to the VHS format. And I think that was because of the, was it because of the porn industry went with VHS? Wasn't it? <laughs> well, that's one of the things porn was one of the first ones, but also all the studios went with VHS. Yeah, but what, 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 what were the, were the studios influenced by the porn industry? <laughs> Not the, the studios weren't, but certainly the okay. technology was porn and wrestling are always yes. the two first, <laughs> um, entertainment genres to have fans adopt new technologies always, huh. whether it's YouTube, whether it's DVD, whether it's Blu-ray, whether it's VHS, stag films, whatever you want to say, wrestling and porn. Those fans are at the top of new technology. You guys are sick out there. You guys. Let me, what about you? Let me- <laughs> I've heard stories about you Memphis guys. Uh, oh my gosh. Hey, hey. Am I a droth here? Come on. <laughs> we've already look, we've already addressed one. You've already one, perjured one, yourself in the Milmoscris trial. Yeah, I don't know if you want another one. We've already got one Monday night mystery to get uh, <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, we're, we're getting and, way and, off track and, here. And I think you're referring to more of a Tuesday <laughs> a Tuesday afternoon mystery. Oh maybe. Possibly. Uh, at any rate, back on back on point. Uh, July 16th was big. Not only uh, Wayne Ferris and Larry Latham still had a grip on the Southern Tag Team titles. It, you know, the, the, just the incredible, you know, this was all set up by the incredible brawl. They won the, the, the Blonde Bombers with their manager, Sergeant Danny Davis, who was assembling an army, much like a young Jerry Lawler uh, from a few years previous. Uh they win the tag titles and it's, and it's very controversial finish. You know, Calhoun barely gets the three count and Lawler and Dundee are so incensed that they attack the champ, you know, and Memphis baby, you know, baby faces did things that a lot of baby faces in other territories didn't do. I mean, they, they really kind of lost cleanly uh, other than the fact that Dundee, I think had Latham pinned uh, in a sunset flip, which I think in that footage, when I saw that, I thought the sunset flip, I think it's the first time I'd ever seen it. I thought that was the coolest wrestling move. It kind of goes, it's kind of a sign of the times that, wow, look at that. How did he, how did he do that? I just saw, man, sunset flip, man. You ever tried to do that in a real fight? No, you're, you're, believe me, you're in trouble. I tried. I would think so. Have you tried? Well, you're also, what are you like? Six, eight also. You can't do a sunset flip. (laughs) At any, at any rate. um, And, my uh, my uncle Robert recorded this, and I you know like like Cornette you know that was his reason for going out and buying a uh, 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 Betamax because he knew that they were going to show it again in Louisville, 
And man, oh man, what a brawl. And, you know, you'd never seen anything like it. Lance, it's just perfect. And there's like this wonderful accident that I think sets up the whole thing that Lance wanted to edit out. And Jarrett was, and Jarrett says that he says, no, 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 we, 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 we keep that in because that adds to the whole thing about this, you know, being unplanned and this just unfolding because it doesn't come off perfectly. You know, that's the thing. Today it would be overproduced, right? And there would maybe a couple of different takes of the camera going down. Oh, yeah. this one camera yeah. in the mustard jar, one camera <laughs> in the popcorn machine. It would be awful. It'd be overproduced. And the fact that it, you know, it starts and you hear this screaming, which I think is coming from the wife, the guy who owns the concession stand. By the way, the wife who a couple of concession stand brawls later in Tupelo, Mississippi, during Onita and Fucci versus Ricky Morton and Eddie Gilbert. She ends up getting into a confrontation with Tony Yamamoto, who slaps her in the face. Yeah, that. Well, here I'm laughing. That's terrible. That is, it's absolutely terrible. And Toto, Toto clearly had women issues. He also threw around Peggy Rich, if you recall, which came out of nowhere. Not a very abrupt uh, turn there for for a wildfire. But, uh, but anyway, let's get back to Latham and Ferris against Lawler and Dundee. Lawler and Dundee are still in on, you know, just revenge on their mind. They're more concerned with beating the brains out. Uh, if there are any, uh, with the Wayne Ferris and Larry Latham and their manager, Danny Davis, Lawler ends up, uh, this, this is a wild brawl from start to finish. And it goes, I think it went about eight minutes and Lawler and Dundee are just absolutely just pummeling these guys. And Lawler throws the fireball. At uh, and it, and that may be the big clip that's shown. It's probably maybe one of the best Lawler fireballs of all time with Larry Booker, Larry Latham selling it beautifully and trying to shake off the fire, and he's bumping like mad, selling it as uh, you know, it was it's like hellfire. Yeah, um, and lucky in the Channel Five news crew, it would have been a close up of Lawler's face. And, <laughs> okay, and I would love to hear Jackie Eaton call that. You know, uh, because Lance Russell occasionally, it was almost like Lance was like going, ah, and he body slams Lawler and uh, there's an arm drag, a big arm drag out of the corner. Ah, and Lawler comes out with a fireball. It's like he's calling like a rest, like, like, you know, nothing spectacular as just nothing out of the ordinary has just happened. Lawler has has reversed the hold with a fireball. Like a, just a textbook move, right? <laughs> that the uh, that you learn at the amateur level very early on. Uh, the undercard was also cool because, again, I was really into Marvel comics, and you know, I found it hard to believe that Lawler ever said, "I doubt if the Hulk, Terry Boulder, went on to become Hulk Hogan." will ever draw a dime in this business. That's what Jimmy Hart says. And the only reason why I give it some some credence at all is the fact that Jimmy Hart never says anything remotely controversial. You know, he doesn't want to make anybody mad. It's almost like he still thinks there's a possibility of him getting booked in a territory somewhere. So he doesn't want to say anything publicly. Like his his book was a tremendous disappointment. And I'm a huge Jimmy Hart guy. Don't get me wrong. But he's always in working mode, uh, at least in, in my experiences. I've met him a couple of times. Every time I bring up the fact that we're former Memphis managers, it's like, yeah, yeah, baby, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, you want to buy a picture? <laughs> By the way, it's interesting that Lawler teamed up within one calendar year, or at least two calendar years, with both the Hulk and Spider-Man. Uh, <laughs> you're talking, okay, talking about the footage, okay, I posted recently from the summer of 77, where Lawler introduces the amazing Spider-Man, and it makes it appear as if, 
maybe it's going to be like a special edition of Marvel's. Uh, Marvel had that Marvel team up with Spider Man and a special guest every month. I guess this was, and it was this is sort of the Electric Company Spider Man. Oh yeah, it's like it's like Jerry it's like Lawler that. and Bootleg Spider Man go to the mall. What can happen? <laughs> it's actually not. It's actually not. Hey, hey, again now. I didn't say anything. That's a different case altogether. Perhaps if Spider-Man was there, it would have gone smoother. Especially if they were watching the 66 Spider-Man cartoon series. Anyway, uh, and it's one of those things, too, that footage, which I recently posted uh, on my YouTube page, uh, youtube.com slash Kentucky Fried Wrestling, and that's R-A-S-S-L-I-N, as the man sang. That's right. <laughs> it's in the jukebox. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, so Spider-Man, uh, I don't <laughs> – when this airs, it's one of those things that I thought I remember it happening. And then as I got older, I was like, I don't think that really happened. Yeah, Spider-Man, I, I have a list. You know, there's, a, there's a listing of him appearing in Memphis. Uh, there's a thing in the program with Lawler has obviously done the, this artwork promoting – the upcoming appearance of the amazing Spider-Man in Memphis. You know, I, he's, I guess, uh, in between feuds with the Green Goblin and the Rhino at this point. So he figures he can come to Memphis and um, help the king out, uh, his, 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 uh, his buddy. Uh, it was and, a loose time before Secret Wars. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so it's, it's pretty funny footage that, that ended up surfacing in the, in the tape trading era. And, you know, I was trading tapes with a guy named John Lanigan in Pittsburgh, and I would record the Memphis shows, and he would send me tapes from all over. And, man, whenever he got his hands on some old Memphis, I just went, you know, absolutely nuts. And I remember finally, it was like the outtakes. It had the uh, the, the famous prank with uh, with the doctor in Evansville, Indiana, I believe, where Lawler ends up dropping his drawers. And it also had this Spider-Man video that where Lawler goes through a couple of takes – you know, trying to keep a straight face has Lance Russell. It's it's wonderful to hear the the interaction with Lawler and Lance because he's really asking Lance, like Lance, you know, what do you think? And then Lance even gives some <laughs> some guidance to Spidey uh, as he's walking down the hallway. Uh, and it's just ultimate camp Memphis stuff. Anyway, don't take my word for it. Either go to YouTube or listen to this clip right now. Hey. I know you listen. You got to pardon my uh, appearance here just for a second, but I just finished a big match, but I can't wait to tell you something. I have got some big news. Great things always from the. You know, that's what's so great about the king of wrestling because you never know what to expect next from me, right? I brought you all kind of things, all kind of weird things, all kind of strange things, all kind of unexpected things, but that's a spice of life, variety. And I got something else for you now. Fixing to bring it to you. You know, you never, like I say, you never know what to expect next from the king. That's what makes me so great. I brought you things like Dr. Frank. You remember that, huh? Then I put together a whole entire army, marched right through, right through everywhere, man. And then I brought you things like Giant Frazier and Leroy Brown. But baby, you wait. I've got something for you now that is so great, it's unbelievable. This is going to be fantastic. All the kids all over the world have read about him. He's been in books, he's been in movies, he's been on television shows, and I am bringing him to you right now. The King of Wrestling, remember, brings you right on the other side of this door, the amazing Spider-Man, baby. Door's locked. Hey, hey. Spider-Man! <laughs> there it is. Look at this. Is this too much? My main man, Spider-Man, in professional wrestling, and he's going to be with the King coming soon. Too much, huh?
Are you seeing him coming all the way down the hall? And then at the at the end of it, when he's starting to say, he's starting to say, you'll see some amazing things from the Spider-Man, and you start pirouetting back down, you know. And yeah, give it to twirls all the way. And, and yeah, you know, stay right here until I say the amazing Spider-Man. Too much, baby. And maybe I'll stick, maybe I'll stick my hand out, and you give me one of these numbers, and then you start zing, zing, zing. Okay. And you need to move pretty fast because you're leaving. So you <laughs> yeah. not to have that too long. So I'm going to throw the mic and hit you now. Let's go. You don't pardon your parents. Yeah. Stock and trade. Oh, that's good. Just finished a big match, but I can't wait any longer to tell you people about this. You know, what makes me, the king of wrestling, so great is the fact that you never know what to expect next from me, right? I brought you all kind of strange things in the past, and I've done a few strange things. But never anything as great as what I've got right on the other side of this door. That's right. You know, what makes the spice of life is variety. And I realize that. That's why I brought you all sorts of things. Remember, I brought you Dr. Frank. Nah. Then I also put together a great army, marched through all the cities in the country. And I even brought you such weird things as Leroy Brown and Igor. But none of those compare to what I've got on the other side of this door. Something great, something unique, something that all the kids and all the parents all over the country have read about, seen him on television, seen him in movies, and the king, Jerry Lawler, is bringing him to professional wrestling right now. I want to introduce to you the amazing Spider-Man. The door's locked, man. <laughs> Cut Door's locked. Door's locked. Hey! <laughs> Spider-Man, what's happening, brother? This is him right here. Too much. He is coming soon. You're going to see some amazing things from the amazing Spider-Man. <laughs> but anyway, as I was saying, the Hulk, Terry Boulder, uh, returns to help Eddie Boulder, who had been beaten down the previous week by Hills, Ron Bass, and Pete Austin. And, oh man, Eddie Boulder, Brutus Beefcake, is the absolute shits on the mic. Holy cow. Uh, the Hulk is not much better. The Hulk does his first live interview in Memphis uh, to set up this appearance. And God bless, you know, everyone talks about Hulkamania being in the strongest force in the universe. Lance Russell. <laughs> the, the job he does in carrying Hulk Hogan, that is superhuman strength, my friend. Uh, but the Hulk is miles better than Eddie Boulder. And there's some, there's just something about the Hulk that I just immediately bought. You know, I mean, the guy was over with me. He was, you know, you have to remember at the time, the Hulk TV show on CBS was in the top 10. It was a very popular show. And, you know, we, we there's this famous story that Hogan likes to tell. And Jerry Jarrett asked me about this recently because I, I I ran a version of it in my Kentucky Fried Wrestling column. And and, and the host of Booking Memphis with uh, with Jerry Jarrett, Sean Reed, he's been going through a lot of my stuff in preparation for some of the podcast. And I did print this story, but I did preface it by saying, keep in mind, this is coming from Hogan, where Lou Ferrigno was on a local Memphis talk show that Terry Boulder was on. And the host of the program pointed out that the Hulk, or Terry Boulder, was bigger than Lou Ferrigno. 
And it Jerry absolutely Jerry, never happened. I know. But here's what here's the thing about Hogan though, and his lies. Like he's super he, he's Who's a better he, liar, Hogan or Lawler? Hey, that's a hey, that's 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 a big that's, debate uh, right there. Yeah, that's a big debate. That's 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 a good question. Well, but but is it a really lie? Is it really a lie if you believe it? <laughs> Prove they believe it. Do you really believe it if you just make up and say whatever you want? It's, a, it's not really lying, though. It's working, though, baby. All right, all right. It's it's working. They're just working. You sound like Jimmy Hart now. <laughs> Keep justifying it, Jimmy. Yeah, defending both of these guys. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> I don't want to say anything. I might get booked. Um, <laughs> my phone had ringing butts, but it could. You never know. You never know. Oh, my gosh. But anyway, Lou Ferrigno, around this time, because this was the summer of uh 79 Lou Fregno did make an appearance at Liberty Land and I believe he was on a local talk show I honestly think that the Hulk saw that or again I want to say Hulk I'm talking about Boulder uh Terry Boulay who they you know they changed his name to Terry Boulder uh in Southeastern I mean I believe uh Louis Louis Tillet or Tillet Slay right it's Louis Tillet, yes. Okay, yeah, I believe I believe maybe he's the one who came up with the Hulk moniker. But Jerry Jarrett is the one, and Mike Shields. They shot the video at Jerry Jarrett's place where it introduces where it starts off at his feet and comes up. And they really had to coach. He said he really had to coach Hogan with the posing because he said that that Hulk just felt like kind of uncomfortable and he was rushing through it. He goes, no, 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 this has to be done really slowly because we're panning up. And my, Michael St. John, I know I've knocked his announcing before. He is brilliant in these videos. He did the one for the Hulk. He did the one for Apocalypse. And he also did the famous one for Kamala, where he reuses the line for Hulk and Kamala. Legs like tree trunks. Kamala. <laughs> All these videos shot at Jerry Jarrett's house. It's like Boogie Nights minus the women. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Jerry Jarrett was telling a story recently about uh, about how he he got pissed off at Jim Barnett. Uh, this was like toward the end of Jarrett's uh, booking run after they had won the Atlanta Wrestling War, which I, I noticed that Ron Fuller is is uh, finally shedding some truth on some of that as well, which would be interesting to hear as it continues to unfold on the Studcast. But uh, <laughs> Jarrett prepared the card, and I don't know what barnett you know if he had a bug up his ass or what that that morning but he comes in and looks at jared's card he goes well that looks like shit and jared goes which part he goes i love it my boy and jared says he got so angry he <laughs> cursed under his breath and he said well i'm out of here kiss my ass and jared leaves goes back to memphis <laughs> barnett the truman capote of professional wrestling gets his driver they follow Jarrett all the way. He follows Jarrett all the way to all the way to Hendersonville. Oh come on! <laughs> yes, come that's on. What, that's what Jarrett said. Jarrett said he could. Jarrett said he was stunned. He couldn't believe it. He goes in. He goes. Am I? He goes. The way my property's set up, there's no way that anybody can sneak up on the house like you. And I'm like, well, Jarrett, that's probably good, given the fact that Kamala, Tijo Khan, and all these other characters were roaming the area. Yeah, plus Spider Man's in town, and he's never had a problem with a gate. <laughs> But anyway, uh, but Barnett ended up apologizing. Anyway, Jared told the story. Hold on, hold on. You saying Barnett got on the property even though no one else was ever able to? 
No, no, no. It wasn't like impossible to get onto the property. It was impossible to sneak up or anybody to arrive on the property without being seen. Okay. The way the, the yeah. So he it's saw not his fight and his driver hopping the fence or anything. No. <laughs> Well, you would imagine that the driver. My boy, would... give me a boost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he would, yeah, he would have a ladder, right? <laughs> and then the driver would have to go down first to ensure that he maybe caught Barnett. Uh, should he, should he fall? The driver gets down in like uh, on his knees, and Barnett climbs on his back. But, uh, but, but I was just like, well, I said, so he drove hours just to, to make to sure that, that you weren't pissed at. He goes, he goes, yes, you have to understand. He goes, this is the unique characters in this business. I t- For the record, I totally believe the story. And not that, listen, and I understand this is professional wrestling. Sometimes you have to take what you hear with a great assault. That's Again, it's one of those stories that's so absurd, it must be true. Sounds like Smokey and the Bandit 3. <laughs> well, yeah. And then also well. Buddy Wayne was on the road. And then we saw... <laughs> Harry Thornton was on the road. Everyone was going to Hendersonville. Well, you know what? Buddy Wayne is one of those. I, you know, I, God bless Buddy Wayne. I just thought he was a trip. Oh my gosh. He would every single Saturday morning, you know, I don't even know what he was doing uh, other than just hanging out. I mean, he promoted the occasional spot show, which it was so funny working for him at these shows because there would only be like four matches on the card. And then I think he would take three intermissions at like 20 minutes each in between matches. And it's like, buddy, what's going on? He's like, well, the people that, you know, they get hungry. They're buying uh, hot dogs and popcorn. That popcorn, we make it extra salty. They get thirsty. They have to buy more soda. That doubles the house. And I'm like, yeah, I guess. (laughs) These four four match cards would take like almost three hours to complete just because we were taking these just marathon intermissions. But at any rate, uh, Buddy Wayne was a hell of a storyteller. And without fail, he could always tell you what was killing the business. And it was usually what WCW or WWE were doing at the time. He's like, did you see that? Did you see it? Oh, it's killing us. It's killing us all. It's killing killing the entire industry. At any rate. Um... (laughs) On this oh, on this side of question, on uh, on this on this particular card, this July 16th card of 1979, Tommy Gilbert and Buddy Wayne are embroiled in a hot feud, and it is fueled by this great angle because Ken Wayne and Eddie Gilbert are starting out at pretty much the same time. So you have these two area legends and these second generation wrestlers, and actually in Gilbert's case, I guess a third generation, correct? That is correct, yes. Tommy Gilbert's yeah. father, I believe, wrestled also. Yeah, we're still in carnivals, I think. Yeah. Right by the Ferris wheel. <laughs> Which I just... Disc- <laughs> Don't go back to that... Oh, other, man. People uh, that just other, always that- talk about seeing him wrestle and then getting some Zeppelis. Don't go back to that other that other mystery. Um, <laughs> hanging out by the Ferris wheel was not... <laughs> oh, oh. I forgot about that. I- <laughs> anyway, so... Um, Gilbert, Buddy Wade, this is a, a great angle where I think Buddy Wade comes out and he apologizes. He, you know, he's like, oh, I'm so sorry, uh, Tommy, I've known you for years. And, and it's this heartfelt thing. You don't see an angle coming. Again, I'm only like eight years old, so I definitely didn't see it coming. And they end up handcuffing Tommy to the ring post as they beat Eddie Gilbert. And it must, it probably was Eddie's first blade job. And he does a masterful job, just bleeding all over the studio floor. And Tommy Gilbert, his father cannot help him. He's forced to watch because he's handcuffed to the ring post. And he and Buddy Wayne have this, uh, have this amazing feud. And 
I don't think it's this week, but this is, and this is one of those rare occasions. July 16th, 1979, we go to July 23rd. I am there for the first time on back-to-back weeks. I don't know how I managed to pull this off because it only happened one other time in history, and that was in 1984 when I was able to call in two birthdays <laughs> with my uncle Robert, uh, who took me uh, on consecutive weeks, and it was really cool. And I, man, that is something that I would be so envious of. Anybody who got to go to the Mid South Coliseum each and every week and follow the drama of it, because the shows were very much designed to, you know, to have these hooks and to have all these different cliffhangers. In either one story or another that would draw you back the following week. Uh, that's what, again, a lot of territories didn't run the same towns every single week. A lot of times they ran like every two weeks. Uh, and that made it harder to draw. But if the storylines are clicking, then it's, you know, Buffo box office. So uh, this is notable for uh, a couple of firsts. I believe this is, well, I know it's the first time that the Hulk has headlined in Memphis. Uh, and this, as Jared explained recently, was an experiment on his part to uh, see what the crowd was responding to. Because he, in his mind, um, he thought that he had a, uh, a serious money draw with the Hulk on his hands. Uh, it's Hulk and Eddie Boulder against Ron Bass and Pete Austin. That's the official main event. Also on the card, Jackie Fargo. And not only that, he calls on the nut. He goes to Bolivar. He explains in an interview that he's going to Bolivar to check his brother Roughhouse out of the insane asylum to be there Monday night. And this is the first time that I've ever seen Roughhouse Fargo. And it was a trip. I mean, the guy, this is, you know, he's pulling all his usual spots where Sonny Fargo is decking Latham, Ferris, Davis. He nails the referee. Jackie's trying to get him under control. He nails Jackie. <laughs> He's even beating up his own brother because he's just a maniac. And you totally bought that this guy who maybe weighed 170 pounds soaking wet was an unstoppable force because he was nuts. He was just absolutely crazy. He didn't know how undermatched he was physically, which made him almost unbeatable, I guess, is the message there. And I remember I'm sitting there thinking, this is crazy. Look at this. this is not-. And I remember my Uncle Robert just laughing. <laughs> and I'm like, how could you laugh at this? This is, <laughs> this is- <laughs> this is nuts. Um, and this is also memorable for the night, being the first night ever that the Freebirds came out to their Skinnered anthem for the very first time. And we've told the story. And I know Michael Hayes tells the story all the time that, you know, they walk to the ring. Everybody stands up. He is absolutely telling the truth. I do remember that without a doubt, the music blaring because they had darkened the lights before at the Mid-South Coliseum, but I had never heard anybody come out to music before. Uh, so this was something cool and, and unusual. And unfortunately for the birds, they were they were heels and they were about to switch them babyface, I believe. I think that was the plan because they had so much heat on Latham and Ferris that they couldn't have these two hill, hill tag teams working on top. So one of them had to turn. So that, I think that was the original plan. And they later put the kibosh on it. And that's what caused the Freebirds to leave the territory because the, they didn't keep their word when they had supposedly were going to switch them. Uh Michael A seems to think it all started with this night because they walked to the ring and Lawler's got his head, like his arms folded, looking at him like, you stupid shitheads. You just stole my spotlight. I'm the king of the territory and you're coming out to music and getting this reaction. So this is notable because I'm able to go to the matches again. I'm able to get another Monday night out of my poor Uncle Robert. 
August 27th, 1979, Jerry Lawler against Nick Bockwinkle for the AWA World's Heavyweight Championship. My first world title bout, and you have to imagine with Lawler and Bockwinkle there, it is truly, it's one of the best matches I think I've ever seen live. And again, unfortunately, there are only highlights available. I would love to see the entire thing, to see how well it holds up. The highlights are, I think, Lawler at his athletic prime in 79. Uh, you know, they say that a lot of people say that Lawler perhaps lost a step when he came back from the broken leg. And I think that's that's probably true for the first part of 81. But I think by the summer of 81, Lawler is back uh, as good as he ever was. And certainly psychology wise, Lawler was never going to lose that. And that was always the key point uh, with Lawler's matches uh, anyway. So he was just a masterful storyteller and no broken leg uh, that perhaps didn't fool. And it took a long time for that broken leg to to heal. I mean, it really did take a full year, which we will get into eventually. Um, but uh, Lawler is if to say, okay, you thought that entrance was something. Not only did they dim the lights, but the theme from Rocky plays, the spotlight hits Lawler. And for the very, I believe the very first time ever, Lawler is carried to the ring on a throne by a bunch of jabronis. <laughs> That's the spotlight hits him. And he's a heel. He had just turned on Bill Dundee. And they got this, they had this great thing. They booked Nick Bockwinkle twice over a period of six weeks. Uh, actually, I believe he also worked uh, with Dundee in, uh, in Louisville. But he and Dundee have a match, and he nearly beats Nick. And they announce that the AWA has ordered a rematch down the road. And this is this is the, the catalyst for, for Lawler turning heel. And if you look, I have some photos from that night where they teamed against the Freebirds back in July. You can start to see... The, the the outline of the crown sheep goatee growing back in in place. Lawler throughout uh, the, the latter part of 78 and into 79 had been clean shaven as if to say, oh, I'm the baby face. And this return to the dark side, it was almost like foreshadowing with uh, with this five o'clock shadow, <laughs> five o'clock shadowing. Uh, or he was the, trying to hide a double chin. One of the Well, hey, what is that your theory behind the, the crown sheep goatee? Well, it did accomplish that goal, I must say. You know what? Maybe I should try that. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, Lawler. It, it did seem like Lawler was like uh, he, he put on like the the goatee took off about ten pounds. <laughs> you, you have no, you have no comment. He certainly that. needed that goatee when he got the perm that one week. Uh, well, yeah, uh, that was uh, that was unfortunate. I believe that was fueled by uh starsky and hutch which was starsky was the guy with the with the with the perm right i don't know i, have a hutch. <laughs> I will uh, i will defer to you and your expertise in perms on this okay uh oh really quickly though before i before i get too far ahead of myself past that july uh 23rd card back-to-back -back shows uh, Lawler and Dundee, by the way, went over uh, the Freebirds that night, also kind of killing uh, any kind of heat they might they may have had. Uh, on the undercard, I got Fabulous Moolah was there. Got to see her for the very first time, and she was a trip, man. She had she would again this first time I'd ever seen her in the area, and she instantly just got so much heat, man. She I know a lot a lot of accusations about Moolah and her personal life. I, I sounds like she was a pretty horrible person, but as a performer. I think she was outstanding. 
uh, at least from the psychology, psychology wise from, from the business. If, uh, if my memory is correct, because I absolutely remember the crowd just becoming unglued, uh, throughout the course of her match. And also that was memorable. They had a tape this match with Tommy Gilbert and Buddy Wayne. And this is one of those classic Memphis finishes that could only happen in Memphis. You think it's about to be a bloody brawl. Finally, Tommy Gilbert's going to get his revenge. The referee goes to ring the bell. Buddy Wayne throws a big thing of powder in Tommy Gilbert's eyes. So the referee doesn't see it as he's as he's ringing the bell. It's just a it's a beautiful timing thing. And then Buddy Wayne just knocks <laughs> Tommy out with one punch and wins the match in like 20 seconds. Oh, the, the, I mean, I thought the fans were going to chase Buddy Wayne out of the arena. And it's a good thing they didn't because he would have had to roll to escape without a doubt. But uh, that was just that was such a great Memphis finish. And it's one that I've that I've never forgotten. You know, it's like uh, burned into my memory. But Lawler and Bachwinkle, they go a full 60 minutes. And this was a little unique because, you know, Lawler just turned heel. This is the first time that I ever saw this spot. I know Cornette, I think, saw it one other time, too, where Lawler pulled the strap. You think it's a, a comeback. Bachwinkle blocks it and counters with a right and knocks Lawler back off his feet. <laughs> because, again, yeah, the king's a heel. So the whole uh, Popeye-Superman comeback is not going to work. And by the way, it's very interesting that Hogan is around during this time period. Absolutely, without a doubt. I think Lawler's, the way Lawler would make these Superman comebacks, I mean... Well, Hogan had to be influenced by that. I'm not saying that he got everything from from I think I think I think Hogan took you know this part from Lawler, a little bit of Dusty Rhodes, a lot of Superstar Graham, and actually I think and a lot, lot of Lou Ferrigno. Well, I hit a lot. Well, he was bigger than Lou Ferrigno, but again, I think seriously, I think you know Lou Ferrigno. I think I believe he was actually on. Memphis, a local Memphis uh, TV show promoting that appearance at Liberty Land, which actually I went to. And I remember being just crushed that Lou Ferrigno just showed up in a tank top. I thought he was going to be, you know, I thought it was going to be like at the full Hulk. He's going to be green. Yes. <laughs> God, I wanted to see the Hulk. That's how they promoted it. And it was something for everybody because it was and apparently they were making the rounds together this summer. <laughs> Lou Ferrigno and Scott Bayo. And if you think about it, that's pretty smart. Is because it? my well, my sister wanted to go because Scott Bayo was going to be there. I wanted to be for the home. Nag my parents. We got to go. That's how. That's how you got to go to things <laughs> when you're a kid. Hold on, stop. Lou Ferrigno and Scott Bayo yes. on a tour together. Yes, yes. And I'm not seriously. There's <laughs> there's a website that tracks like all these uh, Marvel comic heroes appearances uh, throughout the seventies and. Sometimes the, the costumes and the getups were, were pretty cool. Sometimes they were really, really bad. But it also is like, it makes no sense. <laughs> you know, why are they out of their universe and, and here live? But as a kid, you didn't overthink things. You just kind of went with it. But yeah and, yeah, and that's a heck of a draw. It's like a wrestling odd couple. Uh, yeah. because, because, you know, I wanted to go for, I definitely did not want to go necessarily to see Scott Bayo, even though, you know, I was a big Happy Days fan. So anyway, this turns into a deal with Bachwinkle really trying to uh, put Lawler away and finish him off, not Lawler in control of the match. It's kind of the opposite, because typically Lawler would be on the verge of pinning the world champion and the and the bell would sound. But this was like Bachwinkle just beating the ever-loving hell out of Lawler, who's gotten color. I mean, it's just it's really riveting 
even under the circle, because I even though Lawler had turned heel, this is the first time. This is back when it was not cool to root for the heels. I was with Lawler because I felt because I looked at wrestling as a sport. I looked at it like Lawler is the one that can beat Bachwinkle. Dundee can't do it. And I wanted to see a world title change in Memphis. And I thought Lawler had the best chance of doing that. So I sided with Lawler when he turned heel, even though that was not the most popular thing to do. And when he starts being a real smart aleck and a smart ass, I started adopting some of that attitude. And I get in trouble at school for it because apparently I'm acting like Jerry Lawler a little bit with my teachers, which is it's funny when Lawler does that with Lance Russell. It's not so much fun when you do it with Mr. Moffat, your science teacher. It's not so much fun when Kevin Lawler's at the desk next to you. <laughs> we didn't go to the same schools. Jesus. Uh, anyway, I don't go to the matches again until October 9th, 1979. And again, this had to be fueled by my love of the aftermags. And who else, other than Bill Mascus, was all over the covers? We mentioned Dusty Rhodes. We mentioned Andre the Giant. Right before I started buying the magazines, Superstar Billy Graham was the cover boy, you know, with the brilliant tie dye. He, you know, it was almost like he was in the, you know, the way he would flex with the WWF, WWF championship at that point. It was almost like a, it was almost like 3D, you know, he would just pop off the covers. And if you're going to try to introduce the fans to a new world championship, even though they've been educated to believe so many years that the only true championships are in the NWA and AWA at this point. Uh, which the fans totally bought Bachwinkle uh, over Harley Race as the true world heavyweight champion, without a doubt, because Bachwinkle just he was a he was something special. And the way they would always book the world champion, the, the world champion was never made to look like a total wuss in Memphis, like he was in world class and so many other areas. Memphis always did the right thing, even in the Ric Flair deal, where I want to talk about with you at some point down down the road, because I know you and Cornette talked about this recently. The uh, only appearance of Ric Flair in the studio. You know, uh, that closes with Lawler being trapped in the figure four and Tom running out, which I think is brilliant. I think it, you know, it, it they, you know, Flair demands the restart, but it doesn't make Flair look too bad because Lawler, he had Lawler in a bad way. And we all know that Lawler had the broken leg before figure four. He certainly looked like he was about to submit. You know, Lawler asked for five more minutes and then Flair leaves the ring. But to me, I just I thought it was a masterful job. I know it didn't exactly work with Cornette. I know he wanted that classic Memphis buildup. But the thing about the buildup is we'd all seen that before. So the fact that we got a brief glimpse of the exchange between Lawler and Flair, I thought it was some of the best television of the era. But anyway, back to <laughs> 1979. Superstar Graham comes in. And this is what I've never really understood. If he had come in with the belt, the CWA World Heavyweight title belt, that I have to say that belt looked better in person than it did on television and, and, and in photos because it, it looks like it was made in a shop class. Uh, in person, though, it did, it did look a lot more regal uh, and something worth winning. But at this point, Pat McGinnis, a journeyman who had appeared in Memphis uh, on the mid-cards, I think in 77, returns to the area as the supposed CWA World Heavyweight Champion, having beaten... I believe Thunderbolt Patterson was the story they had told. Um, and Thunderbolt and Lawler never even got that shot at the Southern Tag Team titles. I was starting to tell that story. Uh, Thunderbolt ends up leaving, doesn't like his payoffs or whatever. Uh, Dundee fills in and they win the tag belts. And Lawler implies that Thunderbolt may have been attracted to him because 
Thunderbolt did one of those classic interviews where he's grasping Lawler's hand and looking into his eyes and going, tell me, tell me you believe that we can beat him together. <laughs> and Lawler said he was almost mesmerized because Thunderbolt uh, had beautiful <laughs> Beautiful eyes. Uh, it's a great. It's a great Lawler line that cracked Lance Russell and me up. Uh, but anyway, Billy Graham comes into town, and that has to be what made me bug uh, my uncle Robert because the rest of the card is uh, uh, sort of forgettable. I mean, Lawler is with Plowboy Frazier against Jimmy Valiant and Bill Dundee, and this is the night that the crew from Tom Snyder's uh, Tonight Show, or is it the Late Show? Tomorrow. Tomorrow at the Tomorrow Show. <laughs> yes, the brilliantly titled Tomorrow Show <laughs> with Tom Snyder. Uh, and again, this is one of those segments. It is on my YouTube page, youtube.com slash Kentucky Fried Wrestling. I've got the entire segment there. Uh, instead of focusing, they, they, they do a, an okay job. They follow uh, a woman named Mary. She's got that fantastic beehive hairdo who was a fixture at ringside and i remember her because she had the whistle and she, you know anytime her uh, heel was trying to trying to uh cheat you know which you know heels in memphis they always pulled you know little little pull the uh, the tights or a ring rope or their feet on the ropes there's always like some little little subtle thing that they would do uh to you know to get their heat and not make the baby face look uh like a total loser and she would try to stooge this off by blowing her whistle but it actually goes to her home and and it goes to her place of work. She's a cashier at a store. Uh, when it sticks to that part of it, it's a brilliant segment. But like most segments of that era, it gets into this tired, stupid debate whether it's real or not. Uh, with them claiming that I believe uh, it's blood capsules or ketchup or something like that. Never guessing. You know, Dundee hits a gusher in this match. And... Blood is like streaming, you know, out of his skull, and he has to put a bandage on it to stop it. And they're, you know, you're never dreaming of how it's done. I don't think anybody, I think the public at that time largely did not know about the practice of blading. Um, I'm not sure how they how they uh, expected pe people to believe that it was blood capsules when clearly you saw this blood just pouring out of Bill Dundee. But uh, but at any rate. For the, for this, uh, and you know, you talk about people seeing that clip of Lawler being carried to the ring on the throne. That was not from the first time he did it with Bockwinkle. Uh, that footage is is rarely, if ever, seen. Although it is available on my YouTube channel. Uh, <laughs> but the but the close up wide the wide angle, the great looking shot that shot like most people would film wrestling in the, or you would think of like an actual cameraman, a journalist would film it. That's actually footage from the show. And a lot of highlights from that were used in that show were used in mu music videos in Memphis later because the incredible the camera work is incredible. <laughs> you, know? you have these great close up shots of Lawler being carried to the ring on a throne, which God, it really makes you wonder. I, I know if Jerry Jarrett had it to do over again, he would keep his tape condition in pristine order, and he would probably have two to three cameras. Uh, and if he had done that, he probably would have made triple his money in the wrestling business. Uh, but Billy Graham goes on to beat Pat McGinnis in an arm wrestling match. And that earns him a shot at the CWA World Heavyweight title trophy. Yes, a trophy. I guess the belt order was late. Um <laughs> So I may, you, you, I may know who they made the order with then. Hey! 
But I'm glad he had to beat him in arm wrestling before he can get a title shot. Well, that makes you ultimately the number one contender, right? Uh, and so it's, a, it's a, I, I believe it was one of Eddie Marlin's uh, old bowling awards, this huge thing, which you can only imagine Pat McGinnis is like a legit 285-pound muscle guy, and he's looking around this six-foot trophy all over the world. Yeah, sure. No problem going in and out of airports. I mean, it's it's perfectly logical. Uh, but anyway, uh, Billy Graham wins the arm wrestling match and goes on to win. And I think I've just seen my first world heavyweight championship title change. But even then, ah, a trophy. I remember just even as a kid I'd going, really? Because huh. I just love I love the whole mystique of the title belts. You know, in the NWA World Heavyweight Championship, the 10 pounds of gold, my absolute all-time favorite. And the AWA belt, the big turkey platter, the inmate belt that was made by, it was actually made by prisoners, right? Uh, outside Minnesota, is that correct? I'm not sure, but I think the 10 pounds of gold is like half a pound of gold and like nine and a half pounds of aluminum. <laughs> well, nevertheless, it looked spectacular. And you could, and we all know who had that belt made. Salvador Luderoff. And if he had that much power to decide what the World Heavyweight Championship looked like for, you know, the defining look of the NWA World Heavyweight Championship that we all grew up with, you're trying to tell me that he can't influence Mill Maskers doing a stretcher job in Memphis. The two are connected, if you think about it. Anyway, moving right along. In, in November of 79, in November of 79, I get a phone call from my father at the fire station. And he tells me, it's a, I think it's a, yeah, it's a, it has to be a Wednesday night. And he, he said, wow, Big Jack started off his sports broadcast tonight saying that Lawler just won the World Heavyweight Championship in Lexington. And I, I remember just, oh, my gosh, really? He beat Bockwinkle? My dad goes, no, he beat somebody named, uh, like, the, uh, the, like the evangelist guy, Billy Graham? And I went, oh, yeah, uh, still uh, kind of cool, but not really. You know, I, just after seeing the way Bockwinkle carried himself like a champion, after seeing Harley race, and then at this point, you know, you're starting to see clips of Jack Briscoe that they would replay again. Those were the guys. Those were the true world heavyweight champions. Even an eight-year-old could figure it out. So I'm sure that a lot of the fans, it just this just did not get over. But it has it goes to show you Jarrett's way of thinking when years later everyone would crown a world heavyweight champion. He was the first one to start, had that of the balls to start breaking away from the NWA. Cause he could see early on that the Alliance was crumbling and these relationships that had kept everything together were starting to change. And so this need to be uh, so loyal to everyone was coming into question because, you know, with the advent of cable television, somebody was going to take control of it. And we all know, you know, Jarrett says that he was offered, the spot uh, uh, that Southwest had on USA and turned it down because after talking to Barnett and Eddie Graham, he felt like the heat would not be worth it because people would think he was trying to get on cable television to promote nationwide. Uh, but it is interesting that he created his own World Heavyweight Championship, but that was more to do with the fact that he felt like that if Lawler didn't win it soon, that it was going to kill the, the really the promotion's overarching storyline for all the all these years, the local guy being crowned champion. He felt like if we created a, a title, brought in Billy Graham, who we had just seen all over the magazine covers as legit superstar in professional wrestling, that that would be enough credibility 
to fuel this title change. And who knows? I would love to see what 1980 would have looked like. It was almost probably the best thing for the territory that Lawler ends up breaking his leg, uh, I believe, the third week in January. And But it really put a damper on Jarrett's plans because he says that he had kind of a verbal agreement with Vern Gagne that Lawler and Bockwinkel were going to start feuding over this new championship to decide the one true world heavyweight champion. Bockwinkel, Lawler would get it initially, combine the two titles, and then Bockwinkel would eventually get it back. But we all know Lawler breaks his leg. Vern Gagne decides to have one more run on top. And there you have it. And it's funny, the show on December 2nd, 1979, this is the last card of the year that I was able to attend. Again, this is a Christmas present called in. And I have to think it's because this time, it's funny, my very first show at the beginning of the year starts with Lawler and Austin Idol. Now the roles are reversed. Lawler is the CWA world heavyweight champion defending his honors against Austin Idol, who cuts a great babyface promo to set this up. And they actually draw better than the crowds had been for Lawler versus Dundee. You know, I think Jarrett really thought after the whole Robert Fuller experiment that maybe, you know, they needed to go back to what was hot a couple of years ago. Lawler and Dundee with the roles reversed. And on paper, that sounds really good, but attendance was struggling. So I, I'm really curious. I look at 1980 and there's this angle, too, going on with Jerry Jarrett where, you know, is Lawler going to get a signed contract? Lawler's wanting to fire him. Or Jarrett's wanting to fire Lawler because he's asking for way too much money. Lawler, Jared even says, he goes, that that CWA title that Lawler wears is a farce because he's not defending it against any serious opponents. And that was like the, uh, he brings up Paul Ellering and then <laughs> Ellering comes out and gets this great thing. He goes, well, you couldn't beat Jerry Lawler. Lance Russell, you couldn't beat Jerry Lawler. You're calling me a punk wrestler. And he saw something in Paul. Uh, that I think a lot of people didn't. And we all know that Paul Ellering went on to cut some very unique promos uh, for the time and turned into one of these interesting characters in professional wrestling. And for me, you know, we got to see the first glimpse of that in Memphis. But all in all, man, what a great time period to be a young fan in Memphis. It starts off with Mill Maskers, who earlier in the show I just proved was indeed the real deal. Don't give me a break. <laughs> you, got to, you got to see heel Austin Idol working on top against Lawler. Um, and again, Idol did not ascend to that very top level, though, uh, of, a, of a major drawing heel. The blow-off with Lawler and Idol uh, right before that was, uh, I think, around uh, 6,000 fans. I mean, for a, for a blow-off and a showdown, loser-leave town in a cage, I mean, normally that would be like 10,000 fans packing the Mid-South Coliseum. Something wasn't cl quite clicking at the time during this time period. But for me as a young fan who didn't know any better, it was pure heaven. And every Monday night trip was, man, it was just, I can't even explain to you how uh, magical it, it, it felt. And that's the just the best way to describe it. Pulling in, into the parking lot. Memphis was such a big advance town. You know, fans rarely bought tickets in advance. And so the line would be at the door and, you know, we had to wait, to, you know, and we were the same. We would always buy our tickets typically when we got to the, got to the matches, but that was all part of it. And that was all part of the excitement because everyone was talking about that night's card and, you know, to see Lawler carried to the throne and the lights out and it goes an hour. And you might think that a kid would get bored watching an hour long title bout. Not me. Because uh, in my opinion, two of the best workers of all time, Lawler and Nick Buck, would go, go in 60 minutes. Sign me up any day of the week. 1979 was a fantastic year. 1980, 
again, would prove to be difficult with Lawler on the shelf, but I think Jerry Jarrett did some remarkable booking, and we'll take a look at 1980 on a future episode of Kentucky Fried Wrestling. I just want to remind you that Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. You can follow me on Twitter at Trav Scott Bowden. You can follow Brian at Great Brian Last. For Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden. We'll see you next week on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of Championship Wrestling. <laughs>